Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking tantalum, number 73 in the periodic table. It has three qualities making it crucial to energy transition and modern day technologies. It's incredibly ductile, it's corrosion resistant, and it has a very, very high melting point. Historically used as an alloy in jet turbines, since the development of cell phones, its use has expanded rapidly due to its crucial role as a capacitor. That's only set to expand in energy transition and the electron economy. The challenge is one of geology. Tantalum is rare and found in tiny amounts in tiny deposits, primarily in Africa. As such, it's extracted using artisanal mining and is designated a conflict metal. What does that mean for the energy transition? What does that mean for us as consumers of tantalum? Each of our cell phones has some 40 milligrams in it, and our household has much more. How can we meet growing demand? Or like its Greek namesake Tantalus, is it destined forever to have an insatiable demand that cannot be met? Our guest is Hadley Natus. Hadley is the chairman of Tantalex Lithium Resources, an explorer and developer of lithium concessions in the DRC. He's also the founder of Aframet, a global metals trading house focused in Latin America and Africa. As always, you can really support the show by leaving a positive review on the platform you're listening on. And I hope you enjoy the episode. Hadley, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Paul. Thanks for your time. So I'm looking forward to this discussion. We're talking tantalum. And it's a, it is a fascinating discussion. I think it's also quite a challenging one as we sort of face the world as it is and the world as we want it to be. And it's one that's very much connected to us walking around with our cell phones that has, you know, a couple of grams of tantalum in it and what that means. Correct. And it also, you know, it has a, it has a, I don't know whether this is sort of one of those glitches in the matrix, but it certainly has a resonance with the Greek myth of Tantalus, who is always wanting for more, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that's, I think, the, the, the fundamental theme of the discussion we're about to have. And I'm very excited to, you know, to have you on Hadley as someone who, you know, I think sits astride all of the, the challenges as well as the opportunities associated with this, this metal. But let's start at the beginning, which is what is Tantalum and why, what is it, what are its properties that means it's relevant today? Okay, so tantalum as an element, of course, is is one that is very conductive, ductile, very hard actually, and very important corrosion resistant. So those are the elements that really make up the properties of tantalum. And it has a very high melting point, so it's just roughly about 3000 degrees Celsius. So there aren't many metals that have a you know melting point higher than that. And that's really what makes it, let's say, one of the special metals out there. Obviously, I get the point about it, you know, high melting point, which is very useful mm-hmm. in, in the stressful environments tantalum is often put in. And it's important mm-hmm. for the discussion we're going to have, you know, and you've got this corrosion resistant. Excellent. But what is it, its role as a capacitator is at the fundamental of this story. What is that? I mean, just for a layman like myself, what does that actually mean? Tantalum's mainly used as, well, let's say, used in capacitors. And it's all high-end capacitors. The reason for that is because of it has the highest capacitance per volume. So to better explain what that means is that 
it can basically hold a lot of power in a small bit of space. And that obviously leads to, you know, our day-to-day devices, like, I, like you mentioned before, cell phones, laptops, being able to get smaller because of what we wanted. So we wanted a smaller cell phone, we wanted a smaller laptop, we want a more powerful laptop, more powerful cell phone. And that is really due to, well, not mainly, well, it, it's a big part due to what Tantalum provides as a capacitor. And what is it? <laughs> I don't want people to roll their eyes at me, but what does a capacitor do in relation to a battery and actually deploying that power to the unit? It is literally a relay of power. So it takes in power very quickly and it discharges power very quickly. It's not your long life storage like a lithium ion battery. It is basically something you would put before a battery, what is it after a battery actually, to relay power to the device. So it's a, it, it holds power, a lot of power in a small bit of space, and it can obviously release that power very quickly because of the, the capacitance it has as a metal. So we're going to park that there and come back to it as suddenly it gets discovered in its role in, in, in modern communications equipment, which is, which is sort of the, the part of the big rise mm-hmm. of tantalum and, and how, you know, as again, we all have it all around us all the time. But let's go back to the sort of the history of it. So, so when was tantalum first starting to be used in industry and indeed what for? So it, historic has always been used as, you know, in, in as well as a capacitor or, you know, in capacitors if you want to call it that, but really in the the new tech age, uh, let's say starting in the 90s, working through 2000s, when electrical devices became a big part of everyday living. So um, when everyone you know, started getting cell phones, uh, getting laptops, getting TVs, that is really when uh, Tantalum took off as a product, you know, in capacitors. Uh, there was just more demand for it. It was a very, you know, simple stationary kind of growth picture for tantalum prior to the 2000s there wasn't any any let's say increase in 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 uses going forward for for tantalum but then when the mobile device came out that is really when it took uh, center stage and you could see in the price movements in roughly between 2000 2002 it was very volatile and obviously it's gone from seven bucks a pound to roughly now today 95 bucks a pound so that that kind of explains um the price movements on on, on tantalum because mm. it has this role as an alloy in mm-hmm. jet engines in turbines and so forth can you just can we just touch on that briefly so the other uses, because of the high melting point, it can be used as an alloy or in alloys. And the most prominent for tantalum is in jet turbines. That is also the feed for the secondary market as well, well, the biggest feed for secondary market on the recycling side. And then obviously it's in, in military equipment. So the higher the melting point, uh, the, you know, the more things can be used for when it comes to things that must withstand a lot of heat. So not to guided missiles, these kind of kind of items in the military forte. Before we get on to volumes and demand and kind of like start in that early 2000s, as suddenly it gets picked up in, in cell phones, mm-hmm. modern communication equipment, and just the explosion of demand, let's go back to the, I guess, the crucial story of production. So before we dig into the, the, problem, the problems of this production and around geology, etc. Just roughly speaking, where is tantalum found? What form is it found in? And how is it turned into refined tantalum? Resources-wise, you know, you could probably break it up into three major areas, Brazil, Australia, and Africa. That is really on the resource side where you have 
the biggest known resources. So when it comes to actual production of tantalum concentrate, which is the primary product going into, into the conversion plants around the world to produce pentoxide powder or tantalum metal, the majority of traded tantalum concentrates today still comes out of Africa, roughly 40% today. So even though Australia, Brazil have bigger resources on paper, the most traded volume today still comes out of Africa and mainly the DRC. Right. It is the, uh, the, the center of Africa in most of the... So prior to sort of the, the, the demand explosion resulting from cell where and how was tantalum produced? Because it wasn't that geographic map you just described, right? Uh, so, well, look, Africa's for a long time been a supplier of tantalum concentrates. But if you look at it from a mechanized mine standpoint you find very few standalone tantalum mines. Um, reason being because obviously a resource you'll find tantalum in the PPMs, 20, 50, 70 PPMs as an average. So it's usually found as a byproduct from another mining operation or another mined element. So the mines in Australia today, obviously now all lithium mines, historically would have been lithium and tantalum mines. Back then, the lithium would have gone to the ceramics industry, and obviously the tantalum was uh, the byproduct and would have come to, to the conversion plants around the world. So as a standalone, let's say standalone element to be mined, there are very few standalone tantalum mines across the world. Okay, so then, then let's, let's go to the, to the 2000s. I just want to dig in because you, you kind of have this fascinating um, story of how sort of, you know, your average EV is not going to use much tantalum or tantalum as a capacitor, but your Ferraris will. And I think that sort of helps us really understand the scale and kind of the role that tantalum plays in these high-end products where you you need that immediacy of power, you know, your phone being much more responsive, you tap it, it immediately yeah. lights up. Can you just, let's just lean into that for a little bit. There's two facets about the EV market and how it'll affect, affect the tantalum market. One, of course, you're going to need more electronics in your electric car. That is clear. And with more electro electronics, the more capacitors you need to run those devices. So that is the one uptake in, in, in let's say, tantalum consumption in the new green EV revolution, if you want to call it that. And then there's obviously how tantalum could be forged um, within the battery itself going forward. So because tantalum has a high capacitance, right? It is obviously, a, it is a very high value product. And there is work out there today of people basically combining tantalum lithium ion batteries in the cathode side to produce a better battery. Of course, it's not going to mainstream anytime soon. But as per the example I gave you, if there did come a time where you had the supercar relative to the supercar today, and it was an electric vehicle, you can be pretty sure that the group five metals, so tantalum, niobium, et cetera, will be used in some shape or form to improve the battery of that car. And that'll be, I would say, in the high end side of things. So it won't affect your normal Volkswagen. LFP batteries won't affect that, won't affect the NCMs. It'd probably be on the high end of the spectrum. But that's it again. I think that the uptake of tantalum as a capacitor 
going forward in EVs is going to be something to look out for. Not least, of course, the you know cell phones are only going to proliferate, and equivalent type of handheld technologies, etc. Mm-hmm. You know, the story for tantalum is very strong. Can you just give us some sense? You mentioned that sort of price rise from seven bucks up to ninety five. Mm-hmm. Just let, can you center us on some sense of scale and demand over the last twenty years? Let's say. So, like I said, prior to let's say the nineteen nineties, demand was pretty stable. And then came the 2000s and there was the demand spike, which really took the price. I think it was back then actually above 100, it was 150 bucks a pound. So if, if we keep moving in this direction with zero carbon being our goal, we are going to need more powerful electric items in, well, electric items, circuit boards, cars, cell phones. And for that, you're going to need more tantalum. So we, we currently have 3 million EVs on the road today, right, being sold. So you want to get to 40 million by 2030. And for each additional car, you need additional tantalum. So that is a new market for tantalum. That is something that has, you know, we could not model 10 years ago. So trying to model now how much tantalum will be used by 2030, it is obviously way above the current 2,200 tons being produced per year as we speak. Um, it will be an uptake of multiples um, and not just uh, not just percentage points. So, you know, you've got a pretty strong demand picture out there, and this is the, the challenge then slips to supply. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is a story that's going to end up around artisanal mining. Yes. Before we get there, let's just understand and get on the same page about the geology of those of tantalum deposits and, and how that informs how it's mined. Tantalum obviously is 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 a very rare a rare metal in the Earth's crust when it comes to occurrence. So it's far found in basically parts per million, and it is a very rare element. So when it comes to the geology or mining side and the reserves across the world, you must understand that it is rarely mined alone. So it is a a, a byproduct of of mining of another product, or it's found in what we call the alluvial type structures, which is most of coming out of Africa. So it is very rare and rarely mined in isolation. So when it comes to supply side, it is not an easy element or metal to boost on the production side. It is, like I said, there's no standalone mines on the tantalum side. So you couldn't go out today and, uh, and try uh, increased production the way you would for a copper, lead, zinc, or coal, or iron, or type mine. Yeah, so 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 digging. Let's just dig into those sort of. I mean, the DRC. Mm-hmm. Let's dig into the alluvials. You know, these these pegmatite deposits. So you, they obviously aren't standalone mines, but when you sort of got these deposits of a, a mixture of of rare and in many cases, right, um, critical metals, tin, niobium, lithium, etc., all of which are mm-hmm. critical for energy transition but the reality is at the moment tantalum sits in that conflict metal bucket mm-hmm. and I, I just sort of want to understand sort of you know if you were to turn up at a, a place where it is being mined what does that look like and, and why is why is it that its rarity and its prevalence is such that it's it's we're talking a few individuals operating on a particular seam as opposed to what we kind of think about as a, a typical mining operation. Okay, so um, 
to put it in perspective, you'd look at a copper mine or a lead and zinc mine, and you'd record the percentage of that element in the total resource as a percentage number. And that'll range between 0.5 to 4%. If you look at it from the tantalum perspective, that will be anywhere between 0.0002% and 0.006%. So it is a very small part of, let's say, a total resource. And if it isn't a resource, it is a very small percentage of that earth that needs to be moved. And that is one of the difficulties with mining tantalum. So the reason why there are no, are no standalone tantalum mines is because it's usually mined as a secondary product. It's usually found with tin, tantalum, with lithium, and it is a byproduct of that mining. In the DRC, it's found in what you call alluvial deposits. So it is old sedimentary basin, so basically a, a riverbed that has dried up and it leaves behind these alluvial type structures that carries both tin and tantalum. It is a very easy way to process as well because it is a very heavy metal that a simple gravitational process is what is how you concentrate that product. So it is not the easiest product to go out there and use conventional mining methods to get out because of its low percentage within the Earth's crust itself. And that is one of the main reasons why the alluvial and artisanal business is so profound in this industry is it because it becomes economical for them and not economical for, let's say, the bigger players. And that's, you know, without mincing words, what, what do we mean by, I guess, alluvial processing and art, what, what do we mean by art, artisanal? So uh, an, an artisanal miner is basically a individual miner that mines for his own benefit. When it comes to processing, it's very rudimentary. Um, obviously, it is uh, a gravitational process just using water and they upgrade the ore into a saleable product. And that then gets sold from them to the negotiations and comptoirs in, in, in the respective countries. We spoke about in the show notes of this standard DMS process, because it's also it's easy for it to get left behind in other tailings and through other operations. Can you just mention that a little bit as well? Yeah, so if you, if you talk about tantalum and where it's found, it's mainly found in LCT-type pegmatites, which, which is a pegmatite that bears lithium, cesium, and tantalum. So, you know, you really, like I said before, you really mine tantalum as a standalone product. So logically, when it comes to economics, you would target the product that produces you the most revenue and profit. So within an LCT-type pegmatite, you will structure your processing to recover lithium. There is tantalum as credits, but you wouldn't structure your whole processing plant to recover the tantalum because of its, let's say, value within, within the economics of the whole project. So typical DMS plant would have a recovery between 25 and 35% on the heavier materials being tantalum and tin, because obviously its main reason for operating is to recover the lithium into your SC6 type spodumene concentrate. And Tantalum is not left behind, but the recoveries are very low just because of the process. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. 
with six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. So let's get onto the onto this. Draw this into kind of how the supply chain works. Mm-hmm. Artisanal miners. I mean, are these are these? I don't know whether these are family group. I mean, you know, are these are, are these mini companies? What does that look like? And then and then who are yeah. they selling what to? The artisanal miner. They are usually, like I said, they're usually working for themselves, but in groups. They would let's say clean wash material, produce a concentrate, and sell that on to a negotiant. Negotiant would then basically be almost the the trader in country that would sell it to a cooperative. A cooperative is an, an aggregator. So they would aggregate from all the negotiants and miners um, in the country to produce, multi-produce, to export their products. So the co- cooperatives are the company that export products out of the DRC, Rwanda, Burundi, and the Great Lakes regions. Okay, and in what form is that, and then who is that going to? And, it, and you know, how does it end up? As you know, we should all look at our cell phones at the minute and realize, you know, that two, three, forty milligrams of tantalum in there. How does it end up there? So, from the cooperative, it will be exported as a tantalum concentrate, which could be anywhere between eighteen percent TA two hundred five, which is tantalum oxide in concentrates, to anywhere between eighteen and thirty five percent. That would then make its way along the export route. So a traditional export route for the DRC would be basically through Zambia, Zambia up to the east into Tanzania and exported out of Dar es Salaam. That concentrate then once in 10, 20 lot sizes would make its way to a conversion plant. So the conversion plants are mainly in in Asia. There are obviously ones in, in the US, Mexico as well. Um, there obviously is one in Germany, but the majority still goes into Asia. So that will make its way either to China or Thailand, and they'll be producing a few products that can be used in, let's say, the final end users for, for, for tantalum. So they produce a pentoxide powder chemical process or tantalum metal. The pentoxide powder, of course, is your base for your capacitors. So that is that is really the the life cycle of of tantalum. And this is maybe on another point is is there is very little recycling in the the tantalum space because of the size of the products going into your cell phones and TVs and everything. It is very difficult to actually recover the tantalum again on the recycling side. Mm. And also, you know, glued in which is a whole different yep. story, right, about how to make these products. And we're going to come on to that a little bit, you know, how to make these products more easily to disassemble for a circular economy. Talking about these um, processes of these pentoxide powders, etc., based in Thailand mm-hmm. and China and some scattered in the West, mm-hmm. how far up the supply chain are they reaching? I mean, you know, you've got these cooperatives, but are they, you know, we, the, the story, you know, for the last 10 years, Belt and Road and so forth is obviously China trying to investing in Africa to, to secure these critical metals. I mean, is that picture that you described changing at all? China is still one of the biggest producers of tantalum products in the world, right? So let's say because the market is so small and let's say the barrier to entry quite high, the market, let's say demographics of the players themselves hasn't changed much. So China, yes, is 
a very big player in the market. It had, obviously has a lot, a, a very big, let's say, local industry, um, obviously because of uh, electric parts being made in China. But then when it comes to the US, they would still toll the material through Thailand or China and take that pentoxide product back into the US to produce these items needed for the for, you know for the US consumption so obviously also when it comes to you know the military side of things so there has not been a big change with regards to let's say that 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 part of the business i think you know china is dominant but it's not dominating like like you would see today in the lithium space um, on the conversion side interesting okay and then one final piece of the puzzle is what about international trade? I mean, is there is there any? Are we seeing an increased interest in a, a more as we're seeing in lithium, right? The start of, of various spot markets around the world to meet and manage this growing global demand. Tantalum is a is a very small market, so there are literally, I would say, five to six big names out there. And on the trading side, I would say it's the same, roughly five to six. So the majority of the 2,200 tons traded per year is really managed between those 10 counterparties. You know, it is, it is not, it is a long standing type of relationship with end receivers and suppliers of this material. And it is a very closed circuit. You know, there's, uh, there aren't many players uh, in this market. So it's one very tough to get into. And once you are in, it is a, you know, it is long-standing relationships. You, you, you've been, you know, you do the same business with the same people for many years. So it is, it is, it is a very interesting market. It's not, it's not easy to get into. And that's yeah. what makes it very interesting. And it's, and it's also a very small market as well. So we will see what happens in the future when the demand, in my opinion, will increase. And just because of that demand, people will start looking for supply in different places i do believe that lithium is of course the more important or let's say the most spoken about metal today but what most people don't realize sometimes is that the lct type pegmatites all carry tantalum and tantalum as a byproduct is not given the attention yet but i can see it being given a lot more attention going forward you know once the uh, the the let's say demand expectations are reflected in the price of tantalum and i think that will be when people wake up yeah and your role as chairman of tantalex is a, a testament to that fundamental story here is one of that threading the needle of trying to tackle supply and demand and i think this is a is a, is a microcosm of kind of a much broader story right which is there are many things in our cell phones many of which have very opaque supply chains and many of which mm -hmm. make uncomfortable reading for kind of your young North American who, you know, who believes that, uh, you know, as long as they're not in, they're driving a Tesla, everything's fine, right? I don't want to disenfranchise people, but you know, what? that general sentiment, right? With my exposure to tantalum is if I go to my local zoo, they have a big wall full of, in the, in the, um, in the Africa section, they have a wall full of used cell phones and talking about the environmental damage used because none of them are recycled, right? And part of that story is tantalum. It's great to have this discussion with you because you are in Africa, you're, you yourself are African, and you know this is a it's a, a, a sensitive 
and crucial story about how we tackle the challenges. And I think we should, let's start back at the artisanal miner. That is somewhat euphemistic in some senses, some mm -hmm. cases, because we are talking about children mm -hmm. at work, right? And, and can we sort of start there? And then I want to move on to kind of, you know, this thesis about how we start to bring sustainability and transparency into these supply chains, yet being sensitive to the reality of what we would all be doing if we were in those regions trying to support a family. Yes. So that, thank you, Paul. That, that's always a question that I, uh, let's say it's very close to me and like answering it as well. So the problem I think with the current supply chain management and systems in place does not help build capacity for the artisanal miner. And what I mean with capacity there is everyone knows that Apple is probably the biggest consumer of these products out of Africa, be it tantalum, niobium, tin, for their products. But And they have very good supply chain and compliance systems at Apple. But what the whole system does not produce is capacity. And what I mean by capacity is a single artisanal miner will produce, let's say, 50 kilograms of tantalum concentrate, I would say within a week. That same artisanal miner will be working for five, ten years doing the same thing. Even though he has created value, he hasn't built any capacity. And the current traceability system does not allow for that capacity to be built. Reason being, it is all after the fact documentation. So the current system, which is run by Itsuki, it is the traceability system, pretty well renowned, very good on paper. It is a good, let's say, format, and they try implement the best of their ability. But again, everything is after the fact. So everything is documented by hand. Thereafter, it's those documents are passed on to the end receiver, for example, the person producing the pentoxide powder, they would take those documents and then pass that on to the likes of Apple and said, we have done our due diligence on our supply chain. But they have done nothing to build capacity. There is a cost to that supply chain, of course. What I think is missing is that you today cannot see if that one artisanal miner that has been delivering 50 tons, every 50 kilograms every week, has been doing it consistently for the last 10 years and find a way to increase his capacity in some shape or form, be it in, I don't know, training, a learning structure, a, 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 a financial structure to help him increase his business, uh, knowing that he has done this within the supply chain for so long. And, and that is one of the, the things that I, I think needs to change. With regards to the topic of, of, let's say, children working in these mining areas. I have to take a step back and I always say, in the Western world, you don't consider a 14-year-old boy a man. And that is obviously the way we were raised. This is what we think is correct with regards to our social environment. And in Africa, it is unfortunate, it is different. A 14-year-old boy is strong enough, able enough to go work. And the difficult part, if you do not give this 14-year-old boy a different option to provide for his family, he will take the best option he can find to provide for his family.
And we, we must differentiate between, let's say, slave labor, if you want to call it that. That, that, is, that should definitely, you know, we have these systems in place to make sure that doesn't happen. Difference between slave labor and miners with the ability to work to support their family. And it's, it's easy for, for, for the big companies to point fingers and, and say that, uh, you know, let's say child labor is wrong. Of course, child labor is wrong, but that they should not be working in these mine sites. I would argue then, please give me another solution. If you want children to stay in school, which of course children should have a, that is the base for their future, you've got to give them incentive to stay in school and don't compare it to what we have as a norm in the Western world. If you are a 14 year old boy and your option is going to school and not having food on your table or going to work and having food on your table, I can tell you in the same position, I'm pretty sure 99% of the rest of the world would take the option of putting food on your table. So this is where I think people should take a more holistic approach when they name or designate this kind of business as conflict. There is no conflict in majority of the areas where these products mm. are produced. Of course, there are areas where there is conflict, that's for sure. But you should not then name the whole supply chain as conflict. This is something that I think since Paris, OECD, they need to get away from these terminologies of conflict because it is not conflict. It's, it's really, it is a really challenging, and thank you for that. And, you know, you and I have discussed this offline as well, obviously. It is really difficult. And, and we should remind ourselves that we're only, you know, 170 years away from in the UK itself, you know, having children of that age mm -hmm. and younger Correct. being instrumental to the Industrial Revolution. And in that Correct. scenario, you had a very strong state with, you know, a long, the oldest history of parliamentary democracy and very strong institutions to essentially say, you know, a government led solution, which was, you know, now working days have to go to 10 hours. These are working conditions and children under this age aren't working. And then it was only in the early 20th century that we actually started bringing in, you know, believe it or not, with sort of uh, Winston Churchill and, uh, and, and his government or the government that he was in at the time, you know, bringing through a bunch of social reforms that included um, access to free education and so on. Obviously, the DRC and lots of places, you know, in Africa doesn't have a history of strong uh, for for a lot of reasons, and not least the the reasons of of uh, colonization and so on. Doesn't have strong governmental structures to impose that and sort of command these resources at the national level. And correct me if you find if you disagree with anything I'm saying right now. The alternative, in some ways, is to say actually, well, we are going to set up a this is some of this, the tragedy of, of the world of commodities, right? The fungibility. Um, and this is why there are many, many efforts ongoing around traceability. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the theory is you should start to be able to command a premium. If people who are carrying their Apple phone really do fundamentally believe in this, they should be willing to pay, Apple should be willing to pay a premium or, or any uh, OEM for products that they can have that level of traceability that truly works, that ensures that, that are actually returning value to the community, right? And building yeah. capacity. 
Um, neither of those things are in place right now. Yeah, so uh, you know, the traceability system allows you to track where every kilogram of tantalum tin tungsten has been moved out of Africa. And this is something that it's, as I've always wondered about. Apple, Samsung, whoever else, all know within their supply chain where majority of their material comes from. If that is the case, of course, it's very difficult to have a structure where you, let's say, compensate individual miners in the current traceability system. But there definitely is a way for these companies to recognize where majority of their material comes from. And if that is the case, there should be a way to compensate at least that region in some shape or form. So to demand a premium, they obviously impose a lot of compliance related documentation needed for their supply chain management. Again, just documentation, right? To show that you've complied on your side with regards to the requirements on the OECD and, and, and you know, supply chain due diligence. But there's very little form of reinvestment into those types of areas where these companies know that they are not, let's say, developed. So I, I think there should be some sort of structure. I know you don't want to add paper on paper and make it more bureaucratic, but to really make it sustainable and make it fair and, let's say, bring that level of compensation back to the areas where these critical minerals come from. I'm not talking about the Rio Tintos operating in uh, in Australia. That's not what I'm talking about. It's about the metals where you know it has come from a region that is majority, you know, where the majority of that supply is through artisanal miners. That there must be a structure that money comes back in some shape or form. Yeah, and it is, and I, and I mean, it starts ultimately with awareness, right? And not just awareness within sort of the international community, you know, the various bodies um, and NGOs that, that are obviously clearly very aware of this. And, and you know, and we're not just talking, obviously, we, you know, first and foremost, it's human health and, and, and society, but you're also talking, you know, standards around environmental degradation and so on that are going to come back and haunt those regions mm -hmm. down the line as well. And the, mm -hmm. the the consequent impact Correct. on human health and, and 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 animal diversity, but it starts with awareness, and I think it starts with awareness ultimately at the consumer level, right? Are you going to choose products and differently yes. based on their attributes and point of origin? In some ways, that has yet to be, in my mind, fully tested. We started this episode with you. You have forecasted big demand. It is also associated with other metals that are mm -hmm. critical to the energy transition. Yet you've got this very mm -hmm. basic artisanal supply chain that's ultimately doing us favors for the cost of our cell phones, not really anyone else. How do you thread mm -hmm. that needle? And, and, where, and this is kind of where Tantalex comes in as well. But how are we going to meet the demand? Are we going to find as tantalum prices go up, suddenly mines in other regions become economical? Or is we tied to these few locations and we've just got to figure it out? So what, what this is, again, just my standpoint when it comes to supply on the tantalum side. Unfortunately, higher prices in the tantalum space today at a consistent 2,000 tons per year market 
does serve the purpose of increasing supply. So the answer to higher prices are higher prices. So what happens today is obviously the higher the price, the more artisanal miners get involved and more supply comes to market. That is okay in today's, let's say framework of demand and supply. Jump 10 years from now, where that 2000 tons per year just is not sufficient. At some point in time, you physically on the artisanal side cannot move more tonnage. And no matter what the price does, it won't necessarily bring on more supply. So what I think will be the important factor going forward is the recovery rates of tantalum as a credit in other mining operations. So in tin mines where tantalum is a byproduct, in lithium mines where tantalum is a byproduct. This is where this is where I see the market being able to cover the required demand going forward. We are in the fortunate position that lithium is going to become a very important part of our development going forward with regards to EVs, smarter homes, smart cities, just general electric you know storage. So I think that lithium is has a place in our future. And because of that, tantalum will be produced with those lithium units, obviously at a far smaller scale. But that I think is the way, let's say the demand side will be looked after going forward. But I think as in everything on the mining side, it's about timing. And I don't see the market being on the mining side being fast enough to produce enough product both on the lithium side and the tantalum side to support that demand in 2025 to 2030. So I can see a, or I, I, I assume that there's going to be a, a very tight market structure on both tantalum and lithium within those yeah. five years. Yeah, and we've covered the lithium story um, in a few episodes you know, with Lucas Bednarski and others, where does, where does, so you're chairman of Tantalex, where does Tantalex fit in this story? Yes. So Tantalex is currently developing three assets in the DRC. One, it's the tailings project, which is historically, it was mined for tin between 1910 and 1980. And they left 105 million tons of lithium tin and tantalum bearing minerals above ground. So it's basically almost pre-mined. And now, because there was no use for lithium during that period, we have a what I call an inverse mine sitting above ground in the DRC. That is the one project which we would obviously like to get into production as quickly as possible to be within that window of 2025 to 2030. And then we have our titan project which is a tin and tantalum project and it produced roughly 1400 tons of tin per year and uh, 220 tons of tantalum concentrates per year so you know we've, we've stuck to our story of being the let's say developer of 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 metal that'll be needed for the future so lithium tin and tantalum is is in our veins and we're going to be pursuing to develop these assets in the drc Fantastic. And we, 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 we've got a, a, a part two in this, I reckon, coming up on tin, because that's another fascinating story as, as mines that shut down in Cornwall, you know, right at the end of the uh, Thatcher years are suddenly are springing back into life. 
um, and tin is having a renaissance not seen since the Bronze Age. Let's let's finish on a slightly more sort of uh, you know positive note. You have this remarkable metal that brings together these three qualities of you know really high conductivity, corrosion resistant, and there's this really high melting point. I mean, it does have a really bright future. We can figure out the supply chain in a manner that we're all comfortable with and can look in the eye, which you're working on. It does have a really bright future when you think about, you know, how we're going to become an electron economy, whether that's 20 or 50 years from now. Mm -hmm. If you look at the evolution, right, of the cell phone since 1980, right? I mean, it's leaps and bounds of where we started. And I think it's the same thing in the stuff we use day to day. So your laptop, your TV, your house, your car, your cell phone, your devices that manage your house, <laughs> device that manage your health, device that manage everything around us. I think that, that, that momentum of having these devices play a more important role in our lives is only going to increase. If you look at things that are already you know, being implemented now, smart homes, they will need more tantalum. Now take it a step further, smart cities, they will definitely need more tantalum. Take it a step further and you look at, at our form of transportation where we'll have, let's say, self-driving cars, AI in those cars. These things will all need more tantalum. So the, the use of tantalum going forward, I can see it at a very bright future. Of course, it all depends on how we value the greener zero carbon type future so but i can see just day to day we will be needing more tantalum yeah and kind of brings us full circle back to the uh the tantalus myth which is uh not a nice one but uh one of of that ever hunger and demand um for the, yes. for, for this product well hadley i really appreciate the discussion i think it's a uh, it's been it has been fascinating i think again like i said during the episode it's a i think i think in some ways it's a microcosm of some of the much larger challenges we face as the the spotlight that has been on the hydrocarbon supply chain you know has has wrought many changes in that you know now we we suddenly the demand is on all of these new metals these critical metals to the energy transition a lot of these supply chains are very opaque the solution <laughs> requires awareness and cleared eye thinking and a recognition of a transition that's going to happen in those supply chains and i think it takes a uh, you know leaders like you to both raise the awareness and, and think about viable solutions because of your deep familiarity with the the actual supply chain and the issues at stake yeah so uh, thank you very much paul really i appreciate the time as well and i hope we can make these changes and, and you know people become aware of of what's in their cell phones and where it comes from and just a bit more thoughtful about uh <laughs> about the products we buy thank you for listening if you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show please give us a positive review on apple podcasts or spotify to find out more about hc insider and hc group a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets visit our website at www.hcgroup.global there you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world there you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.